Welcome back to another episode of EMIGCAST. My name is Jeffrey Phillips. I am a second year medical student at OHSU. And today joining us is Dr. Nicholas Vialon. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of undergraduate medical education at OHSU. He attended medical school at Yale University and completed his residency at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Vialon, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. So before we kind of get into uh, some of the questions about your unique career, I hope that you could just walk our listeners through what your career arc has been. You know, I gave them a little bit in that intro, but I want them to kind of understand um, where you've been working in the last five years. Yeah, you bet. So it's been, I think, like many ER docs, something of a sine wave as opposed to sort of a clear, you know, like linear slope in one particular direction. So after graduating from residency in San Francisco, I decided just to work out in the community outside of Seattle, just right by the SeaTac airport in a busy kind of community place where, um, you know, Seattle and a lot of the cities in the Northwest can be pretty tough to crack into as a new grad. And so I, I signed on basically as a nocturnist. So I only did night shifts for this group that you know had a busy hospital, a very quite a varied payer mix, and a lot of uninsured and underinsured folks. So a really interesting place to work. It felt you know felt like a really cool community to work with. Um, and I worked there for just about two years before my then girlfriend and I got married, and we decided that we wanted to do something you know quote unquote different before we sort of settled down and and had just a, a more typical life. So we heard from a friend, an old friend from residency, actually, who had traveled a lot. She was, she's a pediatrician and she had worked um, in the Peace Corps and then Doctors Without Borders. They worked all over the world and settled in a place called Saipan, which is this, this little island in the North Pacific in, in the Marianas chain of islands. And she just had sent us a message saying, hey, we need people in the ER. And my wife at that time was finishing PA school and she wanted to work in the ER. So we kind of went out on a limb and just, you know, without visiting, without actually knowing anybody there, with the exception of this pediatrician friend from, you know, three years ago from residency, we decided to go out there and initially signed a two-year contract and ended up staying for about four years um, before coming back here to Portland, where I'm working now. Wow, that's quite a, quite a pivot from maybe what we would expect a residency graduate in the United States to do. So you mentioned kind of logistically how you came to decide to work in Saipan. Was there anything driving you, you know, at the point of residency graduation to want to work in a very unusual atmosphere? Because um, I imagine that, you know, most of your classmates did not end up working in this type of international atmosphere. What did you want out of a career at the point of residency graduation? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that during residency, there's this there's this idea, this dichotomy where you're sort of working in the community, where you're working in academics. It's either community or academics, and those are the decisions that people think they have to make, and they try to they're trying to explore their own their own interests during during residency. And I had the opportunity at UCSF has a relatively robust international and global health experience. I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time in Chiapas in Mexico doing some emergency medicine with one of the, my attendings when I was a resident, as well as 
um, working out in Tanzania at one of the, you know, sort of the big government hospitals there. And both of those experiences I sort of re realized like, hey, there are sort of U.S. board certified physicians working here. Um, and those were volunteer opportunities. So it wasn't something that could sort of, you know, you could do to support a family with. But those were opportunities that to me, I'm like, hey, you know, there's there's more ways than just working in a community practice or an academic practice where you can have, you can engage in your training in a way that might be more adherent to the reasons you went into medicine in the first place. And then I also had the opportunity to do some moonlighting in my fourth year when I was a, a resident. And that was in Stockton, California. And that was like a real working class community. You know, majority of the patients were Spanish speaking, late presentations to care, a lot of undiagnosed chronic illness, a very exciting place to work as far as the pathology, but also really sort of invigorating because you felt like, man, like if it weren't for me being a, you know, a random moonlighter, there probably wouldn't, you know, there might be a family medicine trained person or, you know, an old, an old internist who might like moonlight here. Um, with these really, really sick patients. Uh, and so that just sort of got me thinking about, boy, I, I like community medicine, but I sp specifically like to be in a community where I feel like there's not, you know, another 20 people lined up behind me for the same job who would be able to do it just as well. There was something special about my presence there that would actually benefit a community and there wouldn't be somebody else in line to do the same, the same job with, at the same level. So you mentioned kind of some differences between these ERs you were working at in Stockton and in, in Tanzania and the types of patients, or you alluded to the types of patients and, and the types of presentations that you'd see in UCSF. And I want to drill down into that a little bit more. What, what was your day-to-day -day practice like at UCSF compared to what you saw in Saipan and, and what you saw in Stockton even? You know, what, what was your day-to-day -day like in those places? Yeah. Well, the you know, the, the wonderful thing about medicine and emergency medicine in particular, it's that sort of realize that it's it, it really, like truly is this universal language, you know, human anatomy is the same, you know, sure we see in Saipan, we saw things that we never saw in San Francisco. Like, you know, there were whatever horrible strain of strep and we'd see tons of complications and rheumatic fever and post streptococcal glomerulonephritis and all this stuff that we sort of learn about, but don't see. We saw ciguatera a whole bunch, but you know, with those, with the exception of those few little things that you just sort of learn about re in whatever regional practice you have, it's really the same day-to-day -day stuff, right? It's like just taking care of people when they have an acute problem. So the medicine is much the same, like the vocabulary and the grammar of the of the work and of the of the language we speak is is the same, but the context and the subtext of that language is different. As as you know, being at a you know, sort of a quaternary care facility where you have very, very, very complex patients who who require multiple specialists to be able to, you know, to be able to make any progress on their on their care. It takes, you know, these are complex folks who in a less robust environment certainly wouldn't have the possibility of survival or having any sort of quality of life. But I realized in a residency program where that was the case too at you know, at UCSF and to a less degree at, at San Francisco General Hospital versus these community sites and these more more rural and remote sites is that you're in residency part of the part of the stress and part of the the challenge is navigating the glut of resources that we have in these really robust and capable environments 
Whereas sometimes in the community, in community sites that are more rural, and especially in these remote sites, it's figuring out how to how to manage with a dearth of these resources, not having the specialist, not having the consultant, not having the MRI available. Um, and so it's it's a different sort of stress. Um, but I, I sort of came to learn that I, boy, I sure like that working with, instead of working with sort of a, a embarrassment of riches and navigating that system, there's something so much more, for me, more fun and more gratifying about trying to take care of patients when it's just you having to be creative because you don't have the other person to help you out or you don't have the perfect exact test that you wanted or the perfect equipment or the exactly the right kit that you that you know you had typically done this procedure with before so it's again it's 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 the same medicine it's the same stuff you're doing it's the same antibiotics you're giving but but it's just a, just a slightly different approach to to getting to that final result which which I think can be really gratifying for for folks in medicine, and I think especially emergency medicine. So you were a, a recent graduate at the time that you were having to navigate this dearth of resources and having to operate without all the specialty backup that we expect in our learning environments. What was that like? Was that particularly challenging? Was it terrifying or was it generally something that you found to be a, a positive? Yeah, it's a great question. I think no matter what the environment is you work with, you know, the first day and week and month and frankly, maybe first year or two after graduating from residency and just the sudden the sudden knowledge that it's on you and you're the one who's going to make the final decision is a terrifying is a, a terrifying realization. So kind of regardless of the of the context, right? It was a really nice warm up to be able to work as a moonlighter in my fourth year to still have some support in a place where I would always be double coverage. So there's always another more experienced attending that I could always turn to and say, hey, like what do you think about this? Can you help me out? And as is the case here at OHSU and at UCSF, so many of the attendings who knew that I was going to go out and work in a remote setting or knew that I was going to go and, and moonlight, they said, Hey, like, here's my cell phone, just call or just call the ED and talk to the attending for a quick consult. Or just if you have, if you're just in a bind and you don't know what to do. So there's still, you know, there were still like the pop-off valves there, you know, when the pressure got really high that you had that sort of backup. And that was really nice. Like it was, it was the bumpers on the bowling alley that you almost never used, but just knowing that they were there and you weren't going to have a sort of a catastrophic failure of your of your training was was really reassuring. And then the other thing was, you know, I worked as a as a nocturnist right out of the gate, meaning there were like four hours overnight in this busy community ER where I was single coverage. You know, for the first two months I was trained and I always I was always part of the day team, so I'd have double coverage. But that was a great warm up to working in a really low resourced setting where you just really need to get your chops, really have your efficiency, really have this this mindset of everything that happens, you have to be involved and you have to make a decision and delaying those decisions is just going to build up the pressure of the, you know, pe more people coming in and ambulances coming in. I tell, you know, residents and recent grads that there is no better training than doing single coverage at a place because it really, it pushes you to recognize that, you know, you're going to be the one that has to make the decision. So that was great training to work in a place where like Saipan, where everybody had to sort of to reach beyond their level of comfort and to reach beyond the, the typical limits of their, 
of their training. And I, as I said, I think it's a great opportunity for everybody, even the folks who are just, you know, continue to, to want to pursue academia, to work in a community setting where it's going to be on them. And so they can feel what a community, community doc kind of goes through as well. I can hear the excitement that you have about working in community environments. And at least from my perspective as a student who just started clinical rotations, kind of all I know and all my classmates know is academic environments. And since that's all we know, we just sort of imagine that that's the atmosphere that we would work in once five years, seven years from now, we're finished with residency. So do you find that community sites uh, of practice are kind of an anti-burnout fuel? Do you feel that you are um, more of the emergency physician that you hope to be at those sites compared to an academic site? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's probably the case for me. You know, I, I love working with students and that's the thing that attracted me to OHSU is having the interaction with students and residents. You know, I also just, I love just, just bread and butter emergency medicine, seeing the belly pains and the chest pains and the lacerations and the alcohol intoxication and the anxiety attacks, you know, just the, the stuff that, that is sort of the day-to-day, you know, stuff that I think for many people becomes repetitive and redundant. I, I fortunately still find after 10 years, whatever it's been, I find a lot of joy, just the, the, the simplicity of, of all that. I think for many people, the joy of academic medicine is that instead of just coming to work and having your, you know, your three hour turnaround for a patient and then doing another patient, another patient, another patient, you go home and that's it. There's not, again, sort of this, this trajectory towards something bigger. Academics and projects and sort of mid-range and long-term um, goals that are not just, you know, building your clinical acumen goals of being an educator and contributing to a residency program or contributing to the medical literature. That is sort of the anti-burnout saying like, hey, I've got something that I'm working towards and contributing to that um, that gives me a sense of value. So for a lot of people, I think that's, that's the sort of the anti-burnout. And I think a lot of people in the academic world, they're just mired in all of the, you know, the administrative stresses of advancement and publications and meetings and emails that the anti-burnout for a lot of those folks is to be like, hey, I just want to like go have a good time and take care of heart attacks and strokes and lacerations. So I, I think it's really a it's sort of what kind of what kind of person you are, what kind of physician you are, but recognizing that whatever context you're going to be working in, there's always going to be a a sense for everybody of like, man, I just I need something a little different. And the nice thing about emergency medicine is that there's so many different opportunities to um, to explore, you know, whether it's something just locally and you're, if you're working in a community hospital saying like, hey, I want to do this project to make our group better. Or, hey, I want to I want to work to improve this one aspect of, of the environment. Or, hey, look, could we have paramedic students come rotate with us and I can I can kind of be the head of the, the educational point person for that. So there's so many little opportunities like that that can give people value in their work. If, especially for the folks who are just in the sort of the, in the community de- dealing with just the, the bread and butter stuff that I think eventually can, can get boring. One of my sort of residency buddies and mentors, he, he was a real kooky, but kind of a philosopher who once told me, he's like, you ever noticed how every specialty kind of, kind of dies from something, some pathology in their own specific specialty? What do you mean, man? He's like, you know, well, like, you know, like the pulmonologist inevitably gets you know, some crazy idiopathic 
you know, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis and needs a transplant and dies. And then you know how the nephrologist like inevitably gets some, you know, lupus nephritis and is on dialysis and dies. He's like, and you know what emergency medicine docs die from? They die from bullshit. I'm like, I guess that's true. And that's, you know, <laughs> and it's a funny, I mean, I think it's, that's just sort of hilarious, but recognizing that that's sort of our bread and butter a lot. In emergency medicine, you know, so much of the stuff we deal with is the people who are panicked because they accidentally ate a, you know, an edible that, that, that their kid put in the, in the refrigerator, or they come in because chest pain and, you know, one out of 10 chest pains ends up being something that we get excited about or send to the cath lab or whatever. So there is a lot of like the, just a lot of the stuff that we see ends up being oh, discharge home. I mean, it gives you a sense, right? Like most community ERs are discharging 85% of the people that they see. So they can't be that acute. And sure, we all love the critical care and that kind of stuff. But but I think if you don't love that, or if you if you don't enjoy that, that the BS, um, which I do, I think that, you know, there's a lot of humanity packed into that, into that 85%. Um, that, you know, community practice can be, can certainly get tiresome. That was a long-winded answer to your question, but there you have it. No, that was beautiful. Dropping pearl after pearl here. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit, and I, I want to understand a little bit more about Saipan itself. Were there different sort of conditions that you saw there? You know, what are the people of Saipan like, and, and what sort of medical problems were bringing them to the ER? Is there anything juicy and different that us mainlanders would not see? Yeah, there were a couple of good juicy things, you know, um, as I said, sort of the, some of the stuff that we think about, read about, learn about, and then often sort of drifts into, into the category of, well, I should know about this, but, you know, I don't have much experience in it, are some of the tropical diseases, you know, so we, it's, it is a beautiful tropical island. It's like 80 degrees every year. The water is 80 degrees, like every day of the year. There's, you know, there's tuberculosis and plenty of patients with active TB. There's, we see quite a bit of marine envenomation. So we see a lot of ciguatera and sometimes quite, quite dramatic um, ciguatera. And often people will come in groups. The dad of a big family went to go get this reef fish. He made a big stew out of the guts and the head. And then everybody comes in, you know, like eight people at a time come in, bradycardic and hypotensive to the 80s, puking. And it's like, hmm, how do you, if it's just you and two or three nurses, how do you deal with that? You know, um, we see a lot of like strep, strep there is weird. And I know that uh, in here in the, in the US, we think about strep, we use the Centaur criteria. I was like, well, if you got a sore throat, you probably don't need to treat it. But I don't know whether it's the treatment or the specific strain of strep, or maybe it's something genetic, but a lot of the population out there ends up having just horrible rheumatic fever and kidney complications from strep. So those are the sort of the things that, again, sort of from a population perspective that we had to get used to. And the other thing in general is, you know, it's a, it's a Pacific Islander population. The, the ethnic groups are the Chamorro and the Carolinian people. They, like many other Pacific Islanders, you know, have a very high rate of diabetes, obesity, and um, sort of poor health literacy in general. And so a lot of kidney failure and a lot of people or a big percentage of the population on dialysis. And so we see a ton of dialysis emergencies. And I think the other interesting thing is because we see there's such a frequency of dialysis emergencies, you know, for an ER doc, hyperkalemia is like, it's such a, you know, bread and butter thing. We get all excited. We do all the, we do all the things, big K, die, you know, we have acronyms for it. The people there, the intensivists and the surgeons, 
have some, they're so much more measured about things, you know, as we think like, all right, this person needs emergent dialysis. There's a little bit more like, Hey, we can probably do this tomorrow. We'll just give them some medicines, take it easy. So again, sort of resetting the expectations that we, that we have just because dialysis emergencies are so much more common in the emergency department there, even though we see them not infrequently in the, in the U S mainland, it's, it's almost become sort of road and everybody kind of knows how to take care of them. But, you know, when you ask about sort of what, what the people are like, there's, it's an interesting thing. There's been a push, I think, in this country for medical professionals and patients to have shared decision-making to get away from that sort of the view of a physician in the 1950s is sort of like the paternalistic, like, I'm going to give you your medicine. Don't worry about what it is, sweetheart. We're going to get you feeling better. That's kind of still what medicine is like in Saipan. And weirdly, I think a lot of patients still like that. I went in, you know, a pretty newly graduated from residency and trying to have these shared decision-making questions with patients and trying to give them, explain to them the pathology, explain to them what's going on. And they're like, why are you telling me this? You're the doc. Like, do what, do what we needs to be done, you know, that kind of thing. And I initially resisted that because I felt that it was wrong. And I said, like, hey, we need to, this needs to be, you need to make the decision. I'm here to make recommendations. But I think a lot of people still have the desire to basically be taken care of and a trust that comes along with that, that whatever we're deciding is going to be in their best interest. And it's interesting, you know, there's also, there's, there's no medical legal culture there, you know, basically by national law, the largest claim, like a malpractice claim is $30,000 and to cover hospital expenses, but basically everybody is getting free healthcare there. And so I think it's a little bit more, there's a little bit more trust that goes on there. There's a sweetness and a tenderness to recognizing that and also a fair amount of, of nervousness, sort of recognizing that you don't feel the stress of, oh my gosh, is this going to bite me back because I'm going to get sued and I'm going to have to like go to court and defend this. And it's more of a, you know, this patient is putting it all on me. They don't want to have a conversation to, to discuss different options. They just say like, what would you do? Or doc, like, what would you do for your mom? So it's an interesting, you know, as I said, the language, the, the stuff we do is and what we were doing in Saipan, same kind of medicine, but the approach was just a little bit different. And it took me a little while to recognize that in general terms, the patients of this, of this island wanted just to be, they didn't want to know the, the nitty gritty. They trusted us. They just wanted us to do what was right. That's fascinating. It's kind of frozen in time in a bit of a different era. Yeah. I'm wondering what your what your colleagues are like how, what is their story of how they ended up in Saipan or are most of them yeah native to the island and and are, are clinicians from from there so there is you know there's um, a population there there's you know a public school system and there's a community college but beyond and there's a nursing school at the community college but beyond that there's no you know there's no internal professional school there's no higher education beyond that so there are certainly a couple of physicians who grew up on Saipan who, you know, some joined the military, some went off to, to go, you know, to, just to, to went off to the mainland basically, or to Europe or Asia to go to college and then went to med school and then came home to take care of the population that, you know, they, they grew up with. But the majority of, of folks are, you know, what we call Americans <laughs> in general terms, with a few exceptions, require U U.S. board certification for practice on Saipan. And previously we had accepted Canadian credentials, 
um, but that's it was just less common these days. And there's a couple of docs who are from the Philippines who train there, but who also took, you know, I think step the step the U.S. step exams. So it's it's kind of a really fascinating mix. You know, Saipan ha has been has gone through these waves of sometimes very very difficult to staff because it's just hard to have even if it's paradise and it's a great place to work and the medicine is lovely. It's hard to say like let's try to attract U.S. trained board certified docs to an island. 5,000 miles away, pay them less money than they're used to, and tell them to, they have to stay for two years. It's hard to do that on a regular basis. We've tried to fill holes in our staffing on both the emergency medicine side, as well as the you know inpatient side and outpatient clinic side, fill holes with people who are just not great, you know, who are sort of at the end of their careers or have lost licenses in other states. And we just have to make the decision of like, well, this is better than nothing, but recognizing that, you know, there have been plenty of bad apples that have come in and have burnt bridges. And after three months, we've sort of chased them away. And we've just realized that the people currently working there have to sort of just bite the bullet and work twice as much and cover those those spots. But I think that's probably the, the real exception to the rule. I think that um, while I was there, we attracted really idealistic and like-minded folks who were exceptionally well-trained, you know, so we had you know, this ivory tower emergency department with people who had gone to great med schools and in top of the line residencies, you know, and were young and sort of wanted to see what what else emergency medicine had to offer. And there were a couple of folks who had been there for their whole career, like 20, 30, 40 years, and were just incredibly dedicated to the population who, you know, were willing to, to go above and beyond and recognize that life was always going to be challenging and the work was always going to never necessarily going to get easier. And even if they were the head of their department, they were going to be having to do this gut work often. And so some really inspiring people who had, had dedicated their lives to the, to the practice of helping this island and also some incredibly capable clinicians, you know, people who had were experienced in sort of suffering the, the sort of slings and arrows of what tropical medicine is like and recognizing like, Hey, when the CT scan goes down, cause there's a typhoon, we don't have that capability for a week. The psychiatrist was going to come in and help with suturing and the internal medicine doc was going to go out to the community with his pickup truck and just try to bring people in in a sort of like a, a makeshift ambulance. And, and that's something that wouldn't happen just like just once in their career. That would be something that, you know, happens every year. And for a lot of people, they said, like, yeah, that's I don't mind doing that or I like doing that. And so some of those folks have been there for ages and were really dedicated and quite inspiring so you're painting a wonderful picture of what a career there would be like. And maybe there's some PGY3, PGY4 listening who's, you know, already scrolling through uh, airline tickets and trying to figure out how they can get to Saipan. But I'm wondering, just logistically, how did you go about moving there? Did you take any possessions with you? Did you ship your car? How did you find a place to live? Yeah, I mean, there's some infrastructure there to to accommodate physicians who sign contracts. The policy of the hospital is that they pay for your flight coming in and your flight leaving if you complete your contract. My wife and I, we we just sort of went on a whim. We didn't, as I said, we didn't visit first because it's expensive to go and visit. Not much on Saipan is sort of like online. There's not really like a Craigslist and can't. it's hard to see like look for apartments online and stuff. You just kind of have to get there and, and talk to people and it's certainly one of the frustrations, but, and we just brought the stuff on our backs. Basically we shipped some shipped like our stethoscopes and some scrubs and that kind of stuff. So we shipped, I think ended up shipping three boxes on the slow boat that were going to arrive a couple of weeks after we did. And it's really all we needed. I mean, you know, even 
going on like a formal date night on Saipan was, you know, still wearing like board shorts and, you know, button up shirt, maybe. Life is certainly pretty simple there. People enjoy the island, but it's, it's modest living. It's easy to feel the wealth of your environment when you're around there. Everyone's got a banana tree in their backyard or a dragon fruit tree. And yeah, sure, you live in a little one bedroom apartment, but it's sort of like living in New York City. That's not the point. The point is that you have access to this beautiful environment where you can just go outside and have a million little adventures. But yeah, if there are any PGY3s or 4s listening, we have a lot of new grads that go out. I think it's a challenging job for a new grad. But while I was there, we started having students come through as well who would spend one week or one month at a time doing um, just working in the ED. And it's a great opportunity. And we've had a lot of folks after that experience come back after graduation, signing contracts for a year or two to work. At the end of your your contract or at the end of your few years there, um, you know, it was, it was time to transition back to the mainland and back to a large academic hospital. What skills did you now carry? You know, what what did you now have that maybe your colleagues who had spent their whole careers in a large academic center, what did you have that they may not have? And what did you lack that they may have great experience in? Anybody coming from a practice environment that is wildly different from the one he's going to is going to have a lot of stress and performance anxiety and, you know, wondering like, oh my God, am I, have I gotten soft? And what I kind of came to realize was that there were plenty of things that I had to sort of relearn or re-familiarize myself with, but I was also shocked to sort of, sort of realize that, you know, working in these low resource settings, you know, there's sick people everywhere. And in general terms, kind of the further you get from capable facilities, the sicker the people get. And if it's just you, you end up doing a lot of, you know, critical medicine, more intubations, you know, more um, central lines, more really sick patients, more, you know, more cardiac arrest patients than um, at, in Saipan. It's because they all came to the ER and, you know, it was the ER doc on for the day uh, for, for the entire island. And so from a procedural perspective and from a facility with those really critical patients, especially pediatric patients who, you know, I think we all all of us get so nervous about dealing with the critical pediatric patient, often because, you know, we work in an adult ER and if we're working in a big city, a lot of the critical peds folks get shunted off to the to the pediatric emergency departments. Um, so there was just a, a familiarity and a comfort with the, like really critical, undifferentiated patients that just sort of happened without realizing it, I think. And I was really anxious and nervous about coming back and, and being like, oh, but, you know, back in the mainland, that's where like, it's so it's such sick patients. And I kind of realized that there were, it, there were definitely things to, to relearn and things that were still difficult for me coming back. But it was largely that, that there are people here in Portland, especially at OHSU, there are many people who are very, very chronically sick, who come to the ER because they're just slightly more sick than their chronic baseline. You know, there are some real intellectual gymnastics that you need to go through to sort of dissect down like, okay, well, what's going on? Like, why is this person's pH a little bit lower than it normally is? Or is this person's VP shunt, you know, not quite working now? And in these things, these little detail things that you have sort of have to dissect through as opposed to the person who is that complexity. 
but as far as the skill set, you know, I think it was just sort of relearning like, oh yeah, and suddenly we have an MRI machine. So like, how do I utilize that technology? Or like, oh, suddenly we have IR and like, oh yeah, when, when is that indicated again? And sort of refreshing that stuff. But it was much less dusty, even after nearly five years working out there, much less dusty than I had anticipated. And I think a softer change for me was having a little bit of a sense of two, two things, a sense of urgency. Like I remember one night, you know, so we were single coverage, we did 12 hour shifts. And there was one night that was super busy. I'd already seen like 30 patients and it was five in the morning and a car full of drunk teenagers ran off a cliff. There were six of them, you know, the, the department was basically full and we got a call from the medics who were just basically, you know, sort of glorified taxi drivers there saying like, Hey, we've got six kids. They're drunk, combative, two are dead and four coming in all unstable. And it's you and two nurses, maybe three nurses in the department's pool. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a big department and certainly not nearly as capable as OHSU or a big, you know, St. Vincent's or some other local big ER where you could call and help. So there's a sense of urgency where like your job in a place like that is to have nothing to do because you need to be prepared to do the, you know, the most work you've ever done. And that was probably the most work I ever did in the ER, you know, taking care of these four people who, you know, one came in in like a sort of a trauma code and, you know, needed bilateral chest tubes and a cordis and blood transfusion, all this other stuff. So, you know, coding one teenager, which is horrible, and then moving her into the radiology suite because she died and then getting ready for the next person that came into the emergency department and then the next person and the next person. So that gives you a sense, a sense of urgency and pushes you to be as efficient as possible which is, I think is, a, is an excellent skill set, you know, that your job is basically to have no work to do. And, and that's something that I think is easy to slip out of when you're in a place that's really capable. And then finally, the other thing is that's really soft sense of perspective of just like, boy, there are so many ways that you can practice emergency medicine. As soon as you start to feel frustrated or upset about the specific practice that you're in, whether it's in an academic environment, a community environment, you know, there's always something different. There's always, there's something for you out there. And it's not just that this is, this is my practice. I'm frustrated with it. I don't like emergency medicine. There's so many different ways to practice. And I think even if you're doing your job, it's, it's really nice to have that perspective to recognize that there are things that everyone's going to find frustrating about the practice, but there's also so many different options for a variety of different kind of practice environments. Nick, those stories are chilling and inspiring. And I think it's a wonderful place to end. Most of our listeners are students at OHSU, medical students who are in their clinical rotations. Do you have any final um, tips or uh, advice or anything to say to them before we sign off? I don't envy you in your clinical rotations. I remember vividly, you know, going from rotation to rotation and feeling like, like a total stranger for the first week, finally getting comfortable and when you're actually feeling a sense of place, you move on to the next the next area. And that's sort of the same that happens on sort of a more microscopic scale in the emergency department. It's a different attending every day. It's a different resident you're working with. And I think that just remembering that OHSU is a specific sort of environment. Each rotation is a specific kind of um, environment. And that, that medicine is so much bigger and the opportunities in medicine are just so much bigger than we realize during our training. Um, I'd be happy to chat with anybody about different options, really getting a sense of what, what it is you like and what you don't and, and, and recognizing that there is something for you 
in the, in the world out there. Wonderful. Thank you very much. This was Dr. Nicholas Villalon, Assistant Professor at OHSU. Thanks again for joining us and sharing these incredible stories. Thanks, Jeffrey. Have a good one.